the culture has to be evident when you come to the building, when you're talking to somebody from the company, anyone who encounters um, or interacts with your business needs to be able to feel your core values coming through when they, when they meet with you and, and when they explore your company online or if they talk to somebody else about you. So it started with that. Every meeting, every meeting room, um, you have to have your core values right there and everybody in that room has to buy into those. And so that actually starts with the people process. And that's the side of the business I think most owners don't want to deal with. Um, outsource the people to a staffing agency because I need somebody to screen apps or I need somebody to um, make sure my work orders are under control and maintenance. But if they're not the same kind of person that's going to live out those core values, then you're not going to get that experience. I just want to say thank you to all of you, all the triple win property managers out there. Uh, if for some reason you're not a member of the Facebook group, it's just a private place. We actually just crossed 700 members of that private group last week, and we vet every single person coming through. So what you'll see is different about other Facebook groups is it's not a bunch of vendors just spamming their uh, local painting business or <laughs> you know, other stuff you might find in, in property management groups out there. Um, we're putting a lot of great content in there. There's a lot of great information on events and things like this that you can take advantage of there and just a great place to have great conversation about how to do property management differently. So I met Kevin a few years ago uh, when he was a CFO and was helping a, a company go from a thousand doors to well over, I think, 5,500, 5,700 by the time uh, Kevin and the leadership team, you know, were, were done working in the capacity that they were. I think that company's now over 7,000 units, which is pretty exciting. And a, a lot of great results from a, re a retention standpoint, both on the owner and the resident side that stood out as very unique. Um, certainly anybody getting to 7,000 units uh, that aren't their own, uh, that don't have you know billions of dollars of capital to buy them all themselves, that's attracting investors and residents alike is, is interesting. And I think the average tenancy, Kevin, was something north of five years uh, by the time you were done there. And it's continued to grow since over six years, I think almost seven years in average tenancy I saw recently. Um, so that we're going to dig into that and understand that. But not a lot of property management companies and the people that are here have CFOs in their companies. So I thought it'd be cool to have a different perspective uh, and some things you could share from that. But what I love about Kevin, and I'll tell just a story. Some of you may know Kevin actually from a Southern States NARPM event in Nashville, Tennessee, back pre-pandemic, uh, you know, BC before covid uh, when, when we got together in person for conferences, we had this cool like rooftop social event, over 200 people registered. Somehow more people than were at the conference like registered for the social event. Don't ask me how that happened, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of people there. And Kevin, uh, as he was kind of transitioning out of this executive role, I mean, he's passionate about beer. And let me tell you, I am passionate about tasting Kevin's beer. So anytime I'm going through Memphis, I'm like, dude, what do you got? What do you got in a growler? What can we have? And um, I'm like, Kevin, is there any way we could have beer by a property manager for property managers at this social event? And like he and his buddies, I mean, they brought kegs of beer, uh, which of course went empty pretty quick anyway. And they were serving it the entire time. Like it was a really cool, the way that they showed up to it and did it, it was really cool to see. So it was a really fun time. Some of you may have met Kevin there, but 
He's just one of the nicest guys I know. And one of our good mutual friends, Ben Trombley, had this to say about Kevin. It's like, of course, he's a great executive. Of course, he's got the finance background. But what I know Ben really appreciates about Kevin is he, he, he's a big developer of leaders, right? He, he doesn't believe in just being a leader. He believes in developing other leaders. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom we can get about leadership development, culture, and you know how to develop people where, again, now that he's not in his position, the business has still continued to grow on a great trajectory beyond them. And a lot of people would say that's a mark of a truly, truly great leader. So Kevin, um, <laughs> I'm going to run out of breath before I've run out of nice things to say about you, but uh, thanks for being with us today, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, you bet, man. I appreciate that intro. I'm not sure there's much left to be said after that. Um, I see a lot of people on the side wanting beer, so <laughs> y'all can make it to Memphis. I'm happy to, happy to oblige. Yes, we we do probably before this this day is over, this event is over. We want to know what's the best name for a property management beer possible. Like, is it eviction ale? Is it you know? I'm trying. To, <laughs> is it is it a, a a rent is due Radler? I don't know, but um, we'd love to see your most creative beer names in the chat. Uh, what's a great property management beer name? And maybe Kevin can work on a special recipe for us at some point. And Thad, I, I, I want to give people a very quick introduction, if you don't mind, uh, for those who don't know you, co-founder and CEO at Second Nature. Thad's out of Raleigh, North Carolina. If you don't know who Second Nature is, go to rvp.secondnature.com and check it out. And Thad, I know we're going to be talking a little more about culture and, and core values and some things like that as a part of this today. With that said, I'll kick things off with a couple of questions and immediate curiosities, and we can discuss them together and, and let the questions flow in. Kevin, um, I, I've got one down here, which is, you know, looking at things through a financial lens, um, you know, what's your opinion? Different people have different opinions on this, but the financial drivers of the business, you guys have had a lot of success and you've even consulted people now, other companies uh, to help them have a lot of success and duplicate a lot of the things that you all did. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see as some of the, the critical KPIs, the key, what really drives the business and what should managers be focused on and paying attention to? Yeah, um, I wrote down some some notes, so I may go back and forth between the, the spreadsheet uh, that you guys build. And, and But I think the number one thing that that anybody involved in leadership and management companies should be familiar with is the profit and loss. And every single line on that should have someone in the company assigned to that line to not only understand what makes it there, all your revenue streams that you have, um, how you add doors, um, what a, what a new door adds to your company and, and revenue and all that. Um, but below the, the gross profit line, the expenses and understanding that, that, a lot of expenses in a service company are an investment. So your people ratios and, and your software costs, I'm sure everybody here uses a, a software for management. So understanding what builds the PL and why each one of those things are important to the business, understanding which ones aren't, maybe figuring out ways you can cost save by cutting those things out. But then also, I think it's um, one of the more important factors in driving revenue into the company is how do I get new doors, right? And so understanding your sources of, of marketing, what's effective marketing, where are you wasting money, where are you actually seeing fruits? Um, so it just comes down to tracking everything, which is a theme in what you were uh, asking about yesterday when we talked. So um, be a data junkie and focus on on 
the P&L, where, where does it come from? Why is it important? And, um, you know, how do I get new business? And I'd love to, you know, listen, not, not every business is going to have a CF, CFO, et cetera, but, and there's a lot of people who, hey, I'm looking for accounting help or bookkeeping help or, you know, some expertise around this. Can, can you share some of the distinctions of like, you know, what are the key gaps you've seen in companies that you're consulting as far as some level of accounting or finance expertise? How does that translate into problems that their team or owners or residents may experience? And, you know, what, what, what are the, I guess, pieces of advice or best practices you might offer uh, for helping people to close those gaps? Yeah, number one is somebody in your organization needs to understand trust accounting. And everybody understands this on this call, but understanding that if you get it wrong, like how do I go find that area and fix it? So I think that what I see management companies that are um, thriving do well is they either have someone on staff that, that just owns accounting and understands trust accounting, or they have a really good relationship with a, with a CPA firm that has that person on staff. So um, in the beauty of, of, our age right now with technology is it doesn't have to be somebody in your hometown. I mean, we could do this right here and have a, a meeting about finances and, and accounting with someone in California or, or you know, I'm in Memphis. So, you know, uh, East coast, uh, North Carolina is a financial hotspot. So you have a lot of people that understand this business and, and the barriers aren't there to, to those relationships that, that used to be. So I would definitely say the number one thing is in the accounting area, have someone that you can go to and talk about trust accounting. And everybody's going to laugh at this probably, but don't commingle anything. Have your separate accounts and make sure you're following your local real estate laws and, and how you separate money and all of that. And understand what those laws are. Um, and then oh, there are a lot of CPA firms that will offer fractional services to small businesses because they know they can't afford that six-figure salary um, and all that goes along with that, right? The taxes and, and benefits and everything else. So um, they're happy to provide that service. And for you know, some dollars per hour as opposed to, uh, you know, six figures a year. It's it's a good investment. That's great. I, I want to dig in a little bit into because not just a finance guy, you're really an operational leader, right? And part of the executive team. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, some of these kind of outstanding stats we've heard. I'd just love to understand what's underneath them. And I'm asking for my own curiosity here because, I know there's questions coming in the chat, but I'm just seeing like four or five different beers names here. Tears of Victory <laughs> Lager, Late Pay Lager, Make Ready. I like Late Pay Lager. Good. Home Brew. These are fantastic. Keep them coming uh, and keep the questions Maybe coming. Something tied to the delay in the court system. I think that would be a good one somehow. Could work that in there. <laughs> we need a more uh, a dark beer for a moratorium ale or something. <laughs> uh, Portertorium. All right. Anyway, I digress. Kevin, a uh, question on like the resident retention and the owner retention that you all saw seemed to be a huge key to, you know, again, not only just, just attracting an owner that who gets their first home or their second home, but turning that into the, helping them get to their second, their third, their fourth investment over a period of years with you. Um, you know, more and more, that would seem like a big part of your guy's success as well as this long resident uh, tenancy. Can you talk about you know, what are the couple things that go into ultimately how you guys have retained and even grown inventory amongst your owner base and retained residents? What, what were some of the key strategies or things you guys did differently? Yes. So I was at a turnkey company that also had management. Management is the long-term relationship with that investor. So it's natural 
I mean, we grew the management company organically from our turnkey operation. Um, we actually didn't take on doors at, at, when I was there. I think they do now um, from from people who didn't buy from the turnkey side. So it's there was a natural feeder into that. But they still asked owners would ask all the same questions about management. Like, you know, what are your policies? What how do you do your tenant screening and that kind of stuff? So all of it still had to be important. And what really, I think, created the exponential growth was that we put so much focus on the service side and management, right? So not just because they're going to buy a house from the turnkey division, they're going to move it to management and they don't want to deal with the, the possibility of moving it to another management company if they're not happy. No, let's make sure they're happy. And so everything that you need to think about in running a business, let's put all of that into the management division. And it, it needs to be like it was running its own separate business. And then every key performance indicator, every uh, item in our culture, uh, our core values, all that has to show up on the management side as well. Um, and, and that leads to retention because you bring the same values to the management company, right? It, the number one and two things that owners can't stand, um, you guys probably, if I asked this, you would all say the same two things. I can't understand my financial reports and I can't get anybody to call me back. And so um, if you do those two things really well, you're going to keep owners. But if you do everything at an exceptional level, you're going to keep owners. You're going to continue to add owners. You're going to have those owners tell their friends about them. Um, focus on your Google rating. Uh, that's another thing that Andrew, you and I talked about yesterday. Um, a lot of management companies, if you search most metro areas, the average management company has a Google rating probably under two and a half stars out of five. Um, and so if you can be a four, four and a half and be above everybody else, then you're going to get those phone calls from people just saying, hey, I'm exploring management. I've bought you know, six properties in your market and I'd like to talk to you about what you do. You're going to get that first conversation just based on that. So um, th those are probably the the things that we did really well to grow the to grow the doors and then keep the doors right if we serve the client we serve the resident extremely well then the resident wants to stay i mean who who likes to move um the owners definitely don't want to move management and so um you're 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 just continuing to build that relationship after the sale that's that's really what we focused on because part of this and part of great service is what are the things you're doing and we can dig into that if people are interested in that but there's also an attitudinal thing and I feel like you guys have, you, you mentioned there's like a saying in your company that, you know, it started with a leadership team, but was throughout and repeated over and over again. And to me, it's a little different perspective, uh, you know, than, than what most would hear. Um, could you share that or anything else that you guys did to really drive a culture of service across the whole organization so that people are showing up to each interaction and wanting to be very responsive, right? Wanting to make sure things are clear, figuring out those problems and solving them. How did you guys do that? Well, one, we had, I mean, and I see this in a lot of businesses now, uh, even outside of, of, of um, property management or real estate at all. It's just that the culture has to be evident when you come to the building, when you're talking to somebody from the company, anyone who encounters um, or interacts with your business needs to be able to feel your core values coming through when they, when they meet with you and, and when they explore your company online or if they talk to somebody else about you. So it started with that. Every meeting, every meeting room, um, you have to have your core values right there. And everybody in that room has to buy into those. And so that actually starts with the people process. And that's the side of the business I think most owners don't want to deal with. Um, outsource the people to a staffing agency because I need somebody to screen apps or I need somebody to um, make sure my work orders are under control and maintenance. 
But if they're not the same kind of person that's going to live out those core values, then you're not going to get that experience unless they're only talking to you. Right. So that's what we did. And it started with when I was there and we were probably um, 2011 or 12. I think we had maybe 10 or 12 employees. Uh, When I left, we were over 100. And what we got to is instead of me and a few other executives doing all the interviews, we trained other people how to do the interviews. And we said, you don't want to let anybody through the round of interviews that you wouldn't love to come in and go to bat with every day. And that's the mentality that we brought to hiring. And if you do that well, then only those kind of people make it on board. And then you have employee retention as well, which we know um, creates a lot of efficiency. So. All of that doesn't work at all if you don't focus on hiring well. So define what your culture is, define who you want to join you. Um, Andrew, I think I told you yesterday when we were talking that um, I would rather find somebody that I know that's going to come in and hustle and teach them everything about property management than find somebody who's a property management expert that is leaving where where they are because maybe they're bitter or they didn't get a raise when they wanted or whatever. It's going to be a completely different experience. And we had a lot of people actually, Kevin, submit questions about hiring. And I, w- I want to get Thad involved in the conversation here. I'll just take all of our time asking all my questions. But <laughs> no, I'd love to hear from Thad too, because you guys do that really well, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the things I'm hearing from you, uh, Kevin, is that like if, if you look at conventional wisdom, a lot of people would say, if I want to make more profit, you know, I need to pay people less. You know, to your point, all right. Uh, let me outsource to a staffing agency to just check a box on a spreadsheet or s- fill some service function. And I would imagine, you know, the, what you're talking about here is, hey, really investing in people and process, delivering an amazing experience. You know, we might run at a lower gross margin on our management, but our sales and marketing is half the cost. So our, our net margin's 15% higher or something like that, right? And so, uh, you know, I'd be curious, um, you know, what, what have you seen in your consulting versus your operation days where you step into a property management company and like what areas like that would you say conventional wisdom is do this if you want to get more profit or you want to, you know, have a better outcome. And you're actually saying, you know, a lot of people are looking at that too simplistically. And I'd be really curious from, you know, given your financial background, I think there's often this expectation like finance is just like, don't spend any money, be cheap. And you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I can tell you hundreds of stories where like, you know, you, you got to make the strategic investments and then it really pays off. But I, I'd be curious your perspective and, you know, how do you approach those? How do you do the math when it's not cut and dry? You know, there's this kind of um, qualitative component to, hey, really good people attract better people. And, you know, you kind of create this flywheel. So I'd love to hear more like, you know, wh- what are the common areas you see where conventional wisdom is wrong? And then how do you go about uh, analyzing, making decisions would be, you know, just curious to hear what you're seeing out there. and how you think about Yeah. It. So an area where conventionalism is right is understand where what drives your profits, like we talked about, or what drives your revenues, what drives your profits. But also, this is a service business. Like we don't sell a product that somebody comes in to buy unless you have a shop that sells your T-shirts with the logo on it and stuff like that. So I do want a purple shirt, by the way, Andrew. Um, But the so you, you have to look at a service business differently than you would look at the way a corporate company and on Wall Street would would analyze. I've heard people say we should have between. 27% 27% and 33% payroll. Well, not in the service industry, you, you're probably going to be 50 and up because that's where your investment is. And then I think even higher than that, if you're going to invest in super high quality people, 
you can't be afraid to offer um, awesome incentives. You can't be afraid to let people participate in the upside. If you want your business to grow, you can't do it all yourself as the leader. And so you need other people helping your business grow. And so giving them the opportunity to say, if you're part of that growth, however you, you know, put it to a metric or put it to just overall doors or whatever you want to do, but, but give them the opportunity to um, get paid when they do well and the company does well as a result of that, I think that would be foolish not to take that approach. I do see a lot of corporate minded owners in this industry, especially at bigger companies, because a lot of times a management company will get to a certain size and they'll bring in a very corporate COO or somebody like that or a CFO and they're making decisions based only on the bottom line. Um, And I don't, I mean, that's not a way to make decisions, right? If, If we understand everything below gross profit on a P&L, then I understand what should make it to the bottom line. I need to focus on the top line at that point. Um, and so if you're, if everyone in your company is helping you focus on that uh, top line, then I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a win for everybody. So, so one thing you mentioned, you went from 10 to hundred plus employees during your tenure. Um, so something I see all the time is a comment of like, I'm, I'm struggling to scale my business. A or B, I'm struggling to really enjoy my business. It feels like, you know, I'm working 100 hours a week or, you know, I can't get out of the weeds. And, you know, the comments, people just don't do the job as good as me. Now, from my perspective, one, I would challenge that and say, like, you know, most people are going to be better at certain things than you. You know, you might be good at some things, but hire people that are better than you at a certain function. Um, And that's really how you scale. And the other part is, you know, I think a cost of scaling is, Hey, maybe that employee doesn't do it exactly the way you do it, you know, debatable whether it's better or worse, but like accepting a different way of doing things is just a cost of scaling and getting out of the weeds. But that, you know, that's something I just see all the time in forums and, you know, conversations, the industry, I'd be curious, kind of what was your experience and perspective and were there any ahas where like you hired someone and it, it felt tough to give away control to maybe hiring for an example that you handed over to your team, but then you know, you realize they actually did it better. It, you know, drove that flywheel effect you mentioned of like, hey, they're the ones working with them. It was like that extra kind of check and uh, culture, culture lift. So would be curious kind of your experience scaling um, and delegating, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a mindset um, and you have to have that mindset. You have to understand that delegating is uncomfortable, but you have to understand what it takes to delegate well. Um, if you're, there's there's two things you can do and and they're both wrong. If you don't delegate, you can't grow, right? Because it's all on you. Um, and so you may do everything perfectly, but you're going to have a, a very small management company, uh, and that may be okay for for somebody. Or you want to grow, and so you delegate, but you don't have the follow through. You don't have the hey, come back around and make sure you made the decision the same way I might have, or we came to the same decision at least. Um, you might have gone about it differently, but you but you got there. And so that follow up, it's really a mentorship of I'm handing this off to you. I trust you to do it. I'm going to come back around after you do it and make sure that we are on the same page still. Um, that's difficult to do naturally for a lot of people uh, to, to, to go that route. So the it's super important. My my motto that I used to talk to our executive team about, and this is one of the things, Andrew, we that we we pushed as far into the organization as we could is only do what only you can do, right? So if I'm looking at my workload, I, and this, this is not my, it's not my words, it's Andy Stanley. If you, if you know who he is, he's a fantastic leader and he's one of my mentors early on in my career. Um, 
he would always say that only do what only you can do. And it's not that I don't want to do anything else. So this is all I'm going to do. It's this is the things that only I want to do or can do. Maybe it's maybe it is looking at the bank balances. Maybe it's wiring money if you, if you buy a property or something like that. The controls that you need to have to make sure you don't open yourself up to risk. Everything else should be something you're willing to delegate if you have that person there and prepared. So then the responsibility is on you as the leader delegator to do that well. And then that task never has to come back to you again. You just have to have the metrics in place to make sure that it's going the way you wanted it to go. And that was our mentality from the executive team all the way through the, through the team um, from, from interviewing, got to the point where I wasn't even involved in interviews in the last two years because we, I, our team was fantastic at it, um, better than I ever was. So that in accounting, um, I didn't want to get involved in bank reconciliations and all that other stuff. So I just had a team that could do that. And, I had a spreadsheet that came to me, to me once a month with dates. Um, th- they're all reconciled and they all are zero. And I'm happy, right? That's great. Thad, if you don't mind uh, cutting in, we got a couple questions in the chat. And Jim Smith, we'd love to bring you up. Saw a couple good questions. We can just bring you up to ask those live. That would be great. Jim, good to see you. Oh, thank you. Uh, appreciate y'all putting these together. They're informative. The question, this comes from my own personal experience that I had, I had a, a, a person that offered me a only, I've only been an employee for two and a half years of my life. And I told the guy that I was only, I would give him at least two years, no more than three, but he offered me a, a pretty good salary. And I said, no, let me take a base pay, but give me a percentage of whatever I produce over and above your current revenue, which I ended up getting, being the, the, basically the second, between the second and third highest paid person and the largest builder in town. Uh, because I set it up that way. Have you seen that structure set up with property management as far as hiring quality uh, game players to come in with the company? You know, forgetting about all the other things that you want, you're looking for the qualities, but just from the standpoint of motivation, for me, it was a game. You know, the, the money was nearly a scorecard. I really didn't care about the cash itself so much as I did. Well, let's see what I can do. And I sort of had my target on what can I do to produce better for the company? which meant that was going to be bettering my bottom line. I'll shut up and listen to what you have to say. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, that, you're right on point. And it's back to the, the way that company is um, the mindset of the, of the leadership of that company. That's a great structure. If they know they can trust you to bring them the right kind of uh, owners and properties that fit their box, you know, everybody has their box of where we manage and what price points we manage and all that. That's a tremendous opportunity for you to have the upside um, to, because your production produces revenue for them, profit for them. They should share that with you. Uh, the questions that I would get into with you in, in structuring that scenario is, all right, I want to make sure you understand our core values, our philosophy, what we don't want, right? Um, not all revenue is good revenue. So understanding from my vantage point as the executive I, these are the kinds of revenues we don't want, right? We, we don't want, um, and, and it's different for every organization. I personally don't like one property owners. Um, I would rather steer clear of them unless I know they're continuing to build their portfolio and maybe even they want me to be a part of helping them build that because it, in my experience, they're, it's either 100% or zero and they're either super happy or they're difficult. And where you have a customer service um, responsibility to all your uh, investors, one property owners do seem to have a lot of um, need 
And so you have to weigh that in and say, all right, our philosophy is we only want investors that are continuing to build a portfolio. We want everybody to get off one. And so if somebody's on one and needs to be planning to get off one, I would turn you loose on that and say, go get all those people to five somehow. And and you get to participate in that. Yeah. It, you know, Thad, I don't, I don't, maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but I, when I hear like compensation and how things, how things are incentivized, you know, I remember even a change at second nature from when I started to how things are now, maybe you could give that as an example of just making sure you're picking the right target to incentivize, right? Um, like, what are you really trying to create, you know, and ultimately move focus towards and making sure it's done in a way that is building the kind of business that you want to build. I'm not sure if you're comfortable sharing that yeah. or if I should come back to Kevin with a question. No, I mean, I, I, I can jump in here. So I, I remember early on, one of our, uh, a mentor of mine, we were talking about um, this topic and they said, you know, sales compensation specifically is like the rudder on the ship. It really drives behavior. And, you know, the, I think it's something that's really worth a lot of thought. Um, and specifically starting with, all right, what are the outcomes you want to drive as a business from, you know, how are we going to treat our customers? Uh, how are we going to treat other internal employees? And then designing a compensation system that achieves those outcomes really takes, you know, it, it's one of these things where I think hundreds of hours going in to think about it might seem silly, but once you really start to figure out what are those levers, you know, how do we account for these? You know, an example I'd give to, to what Kevin said is, you know, let's say you have a business that has maintenance revenue and then it has management, re- you know, you have different gross margins. And so if you do a simple, all right, we're going to give you a percentage of revenue. Well, then really what you're telling, you know, the team is, hey, let's just go get any kind of revenue. I don't care if it's 30% gross margin or 2% gross margin, because I get 1% of it. And, you know, obviously for the business, you know, grabbing, <laughs> you know, the 30% gross margin is really the objective. And so I think, you know, as we think about compensation, it's really, okay, what are the outcomes we want to drive? And then, you know, it's not just about how do you get revenue? How do you service a customer? So are you designing a system where, you know, people might use the word residual or things like that? You know, are you designing something that incentivizes, I take care of that customer a long time. And, you know, I, th- I think you see a lot of kind of, uh, we'll use the word corporate organizations. It's like, you know, sales is known for overpromise, underdeliver, get the contract signed, throw it over the fence. And then, you know, they don't really care what happens. You know, I've, I've heard stories of companies where like, you know, reps are like, yeah, I signed the same deal three times in three years and we never onboarded them, <laughs> you know, but I got paid every time. Right. And that's, you know, not a win for the company, not a win for the customer. And you start to see these abnormal activities, you know, where salespeople, you know, may, may do something, you know, out of the norm. So I think for us, it's something we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, every year we revisit our structure and say, okay, you know, what are all the things we want to accomplish? Where have we seen somebody not get rewarded for doing the right thing? And how can we address that? You know, where have we seen people not focus on the right things because they're getting rewarded for something that that would be suboptimal for, for our customers, you know, the experience we want to deliver. So, you know, I think it's something, you know, we spend a ton of time thinking about, you know, in our case, we incentivize, you know, of course, you know, revenue growth, bringing on your customers, but we almost equally incentivize you know, the longer term, you know, are we keeping, um, you know, our service level up? Are we meeting expectations? So in our organization, if, if you're, you know, if, if we work with a new customer and, you know, are they happy in year two and three drives just as much compensation as, you know, are we able to bring them in the door? Um, and so that's something, you know, how we've approached it. 
but I, I can tell you, it's, you know, you spend five hours going down this rabbit hole and eventually go, all right, we just got to scrap that. Like, that's not going to work. You know, there's, you know, there's all these different pressure points of like, well, what happens if we do a deal this way? And then I think, you know, we've also found there's concessions you have to make. Some stuff's just, you know, you don't want to make these things overly complex. I think we've been a victim of that where, you know, it took a PhD to figure out the comp plan because we're like, why'd you do this? Well, in this one in a million scenario, it solved for this problem, right? So I think really thinking through, you know, how can you tie it to, um, you know, the service you want to deliver and putting an ample amount of time in there, I think is worth it. Um, and so that's kind of how we've approached it. Um, I heard that reflected in Kevin's answer too, of like making sure, you know, which type of customer are we bring on, right? The one door customer or this customer, there's probably a different lifetime value. There's different margins on those because this one has higher needs and services here, right? This one, we're more equipped to meet uh, where they're at and deliver great service right away. And it, it just gets me thinking about, you know, the compensation is what we're talking about, but really it's just thinking about what is that triple win outcome, right? And really defining and focusing everybody on that. If it's paying rent on time, right? Like as an example, we know that's good for the resident. We know that's good for the investor. We know that's good for the team. And it's going to create the triple win experience that helps us build our business the right direction. And so taking the time to be very thoughtful and define what is that triple win outcome in clear and simple terms, and then get on the, you know, on the task of, okay, how do we create that triple win experience? How do we get there? What's the new approach to get there? That drives a lot of, a lot of great innovation and results. Andrew, one thing I'm thinking of on just on this, like here's where my head was going, like, when I think about, all right, we don't want the investor as one home who's like, I can barely afford to pay a maintenance bill. Like, please take care of this. They're going to be, you know, a tough customer. And then you think about that person that, hey, I only have one home, but actually I'm trying to build a 20 home portfolio. Um, and so as I think about potential business development compensation, is it like, hey, I bring that one customer and I get paid, you know, could you do a, a bonus structure where, you know, every time this person adds a property, even though you didn't necessarily sell them, we're going to actually structure it where you get an incentive. And then those are the subtle things that in those conversations, you know, I'm just imagining if I'm doing business development for you, Kevin, and I'm in a conversation and I'm like, wait, this person just told me, you know, they want to build a 20 unit portfolio. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to really focus on that deal. That's going to attract the right customer versus, you know, if I'm not getting that residual or that, that structure long-term, I might say, oh, they only get one. That's what I get paid on, push them to the side. And I might go all in on this, duplex customer, you know, that has, maybe I get a 20% more commission, but they're going to be a mess for the business. And so I think just thinking through those little pieces of like, you know, what's the ultimate goal. And in that case, you know, um, you know, are you incentivizing downstream effects that they may not be responsible for, you know, they might not be the one to upgrade them to 20 units, but knowing that going in, you know, can it, can attract uh, the right kind of thinking, the right kind of conversations. So, yeah. And, and you have to define the win. And Andrew, you said it, and Thad, you said it too. What is the outcome we're looking for? Build the incentive position by position, and it's and it can be different. I mean, you don't have to have the same incentive structure across the whole company. So if I want to incentivize portfolio managers to this, which is your business development uh, or your customer service, your business development this way, um, maintenance this way, leasing this way, I mean, it should all produce the win. And if, they, if the win happens, everybody's happy, like you said, Andrew, the triple win. So, Yeah, so we've got a couple things. Laura, I think has got some folks queued up. I think Jan, uh, we're bringing up. Jan had something she'd like to share. Hi, yes. Um, well, I was thinking about what Jim said about 
how you um, how you get people on board to uh, reward them or to incentivize them um, to be part of the of the process. And uh, when we hired our uh, people who manage our website, that was a real question for us. I have for a very long time. I have um, paid all of my staff on some formula of commission and some some formula based on results. And so I think that you know hiring somebody to do your website is challenging because you know there's a million people out there that say, oh, I can do this for you, I can do that for you. I mean, we get all the spam email every week saying, you know, we we looked at your website and, you know, it has this many errors in it and we can do this for you and that for you. So I think it's really a dilemma as to how to hire somebody to do the website. But um, we were able to do that specifically in our vacation rental business um, when we contracted with the people who wanted to help us with the website. We said, okay, that would be great. And here's how we're going to you know, compensate you. Um, and we showed them our current levels of reservations and exactly what the vacation rental business was doing. And so they agreed that they would be compensated based on um, how much additional production we were able to do based on the new website that they developed for us. I think that was 10 years ago. And so the original contract was for I'm thinking three years. And then at three years, you know, we said, well, we're going to renegotiate it. Well, what ended up happening was that it was so profitable for us and for them that we just kept them on as a percentage of what we do. So they are continually incentivized to improve the website and to help us improve our performance because they get compensated that way. Yeah, they stole a trick from commercial real estate. If, you, if you've ever gone through a commercial real estate lease. Oh, I don't know about that, but that's great. Yeah, a lot of them will say, um, are your rents going to be this, but uh, to, to guarantee you that I'm going to maintain the rest of the property and make sure that I put the right kind of um, other businesses in here with you, I'm going to take, I'll take 3% of your revenue. So their upside is your success as the business and, and they make more, which is a win for everybody again, so. It's not just staff and it's not just owners and it's not just residents, but your vendors are part of that also. And they impact that experience just as much as somebody you're paying on payroll. We had a long conversation and Sam, it's good to have you up here. I'll let you jump in right after this. So, you know, we do what we call success-based pricing, right? There's certainly a lot of vendors out there. Like the day you turn it on, you're being charged a certain amount for every unit, even though the value of actually adopting across all those units is, is going to trail that, right? And we said, well, the way we're going to do this is actually property managers are going to collect revenue first. We're going to invoice costs after that. It'll be cash flow positive day one. And we felt more comfortable philosophically aligning to we deliver value first and then uh, and then we're paid after that, right? Which is not necessarily the way it's always done, but we are seeing more and more people adopt that approach. Um, Sam, it's great to have you up here, man. Thanks for being on here again. I heard you have a question. Yeah, so so uh, I'm considering uh, starting to put into a maintenance company. I like I love the concept of turnkeying. I'm very investor focused um, naturally. So my question is more about um, I recognize that you want to run your books and everything separately, but do you do you do things to try to incentivize people? Meaning, 
you artificially reduce margin maybe on your property management side as you could relative to your competitors or things like that. Um, I'm just curious to, 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 to see how you think about two business units um, and, and trying to reconcile possibly, um, I, don't want to, I don't want to call it a lost leader, but uh, having one maybe uh, subordinate to the other uh, for the benefit of the both. Are you talking about having like the turnkey and the management side? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. The, the, there are businesses, uh, I have friends in this business in Memphis too and other companies and, and across different metro areas. The turnkey business is the, I mean, it's the unknown, right? It's the variable. Management is the one that once you have them, if you're doing your job well, you know you have them for a really long time. That's the annuity. So whatever it takes on the turnkey side or if you have a good relationship as a management company with a property provider that you can trust their quality, then do whatever you need to do to get those doors in. If you're confident in the way you've got your management company set up, that will that will just continue to produce fruit on that side. So it sounds like you would do the turnkey side as a means to drive clients to the management side. So you really were trying to realize your profit in the management side and not as much in the turnkey side. So, um, or, or is that wrong in thinking? No, no, no. I, I think it's, it's, and it's not, um, it, it's not really the mentality behind it. It's just way it happens. You're going to make a profit once on the house that you, that you sold, right? You're going to make a monthly profit annual years over years over years managing that relationship with that owner well for that house. And then if they add more doors outside of you, uh, of your sales side, then that's just pure management profit there. And you're getting that at because you delivered on their experience from the one house you sold them. So any way you can focus on a good relationship with somebody that's funneling doors to you that fits your box is, is um, a good philosophy. Sam, I, I want to keep you up for a second because I want to ask a follow-up question or two on this. Kevin, like, you know, as an example, did you guys ever discount your management fee, right? If somebody's using you for full turnkey and, hey, we're making a lot on the rehab, we're making more here. And, and so as opposed to, a, you know, X, Y percent management fee, we're going to do that minus one or two percent, right, as an example. Or, or was it ever the other way around as an example? Hey, normally this rehab and everything would be like this, but we're going to give you a 5% discount. Uh, you know, because you become a full management client for a period of at least two years or was there any kind of, um, you know, changes or were they truly run as like independently, this will be a business and we, we want to fuel this business, but we're looking at them as kind of two independent pieces from a P&L standpoint. Yeah. So, and I probably should give a, a disclaimer for everybody in case you are in this kind of, so you definitely want to make sure that the investor knows they do not have to use your management company if you sell the property, right? That's a no-no and you can't tie stuff like that together. So the way you do that, incentivize that investor to use that is, yes, if you buy from us, management rate is this percentage. We might even do the renewal on leases or first month um, placement fee is lower or something like that to incentivize them to come to your uh, turnkey company first. Um, the other thing we would do is, is, I know after I left there and I see this and other management companies, if a property is brought to them outside of their normal sales funnel, then that's a higher management rate right out of the gate. And it's usually um, one to two points higher than just on the straight management rate. I see a lot of companies in Memphis, this is kind of our market here, will go 75 or 80% of first month's rent replacement if you buy it from us. If you don't, it's the entire first month 
renewal might be 250 over here, but it's 195 if you're with us, that kind of thing. So yeah, incremental cost savings because you came through us and, you know, we captured a lot of revenue multiple ways through that relationship. Yeah, just a quick follow-up, because I know that in your example also, you were talking about how you were trying to grow from or, or finding the right demographic that loves and wants to continue to invest with you into the turnkey business. So would you then incentivize the other way too? And now that you've done one with us, now that we're going to do another, you know, we're going to discount the GC fee that we have on the, the renovation or, or however you do it. So are you kind of doing it in both areas to some level? Um, I mean, you could, we weren't, but yeah, you could. I mean, it, if you're, we had a, a mentality that it, we are really more, and Andrew, you might've experienced this uh, talking to that group after I was gone, even the, the our mentality was we're going to give you the best experience and that's going to come with the best property that's got everything done to it that you need done as a, as a passive investor investing from out of state. Right. And the management experience is going to be phenomenal with customer service and accounting and, and everything that we put into it. So we didn't really feel the need to do that. Um, if you come back around now, what we did do is if you bought one, then you might get, um, I'm going to just use numbers. You, you might be at 8% instead of nine or 10. Uh, if you go to five, we're going to drop you down another point. And then I know after I left, I think they were adding more tiers. I do see this in other management companies. If you've got five, um, and then you go to 10, that investor costs you less for those extra five doors than five new doors cost you with five new people. So it's uh, it certainly makes financial sense to give them a break on that. And I think everybody on this call would rather have one investor with 10 than 10 investors with one. <laughs> I, I was real quick. I've actually, I had uh, Laura tee up a poll. I wanted to poll the whole audience here. Um, and then maybe we can, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going, but you had mentioned early on, Kevin, that you really focused on the turnkey as your source of growth versus going and grabbing investors. But it also sounded like a good web presence SEO to attract people already at a portfolio was also key. So, you know, so you're hitting both growth engines. Uh, but one thing, you know, I'd love to ask the group, and I think Laura's going to uh, throw this poll up now uh, and, and answer this, I would say more pragmatically today versus like optimistically for the future is, is, is turnkey and in, in attracting investors to grow a key focus in the business or is it really an afterthought and it's just been management and attracting units? So simple uh, two options, but I'd love to get a sense from what this group's kind of focused on today. It's cool to see this live as the first uh, 15, 20 people are answering this year. This is cool. So sharing results, there we go. So it looks like about a three-quarter, one-quarter split there, Thad. What's funny is, I, you know, this is something I talk with a lot of folks about one-on-one. -on -one, and my my non-official number was always like 80-20, which it looked like it's pretty close to. But I think it's interesting because something I've noticed when I talk to folks who have really gone through this hyper-growth, you know, 100 units to thousands or thousands to 7,000 in Kevin's case, a lot of times, you know, they're saying, hey, we, we are getting the we are getting the mom and pop. We are getting the units that already exist. But it seems there's all like a common theme is once we get those units, we're creating an investment plan. You know, we're really driving more units out of our existing customers and our best customers. So it's it's interesting to see that. And I think, um, you know, I'd be curious, kind of, you're, you know, is this how you guys got started? Was always your strategy, Kevin? Is this something you guys kind of migrated to over time? And uh, you know, curious if you have anything else there, but. Appreciate everyone answering that, by the way. I was curious. So. Yeah, no, that's cool to see that. That's that's about the split that I would have thought too, because 
it's so much more operationally challenging to be a turnkey business and property management. Um, you can do property management. In fact, I've seen several companies um, and I've had a few clients that have hired me as their turnkey and they want to start management because they understand I'm handing that door off and now I'm losing control of that relationship to a company I don't own. Um, I see less management companies saying, hey, I want a turnkey. Um, you're probably better off just funneling your energy into building good, solid relationships with people that are turnkey without management, you know. And it, as long as the values align, it, it's a great partnership. Um, I've even seen some management companies um, offer some incentives back to the turnkey company for the right kind of introduction, not a tie or a kickback or anything like that. But just, hey, if we um, if we manage this property for your client and, and all you do is just make the handoff of the interest, uh, introduction to us, then there's that opportunity for them to win that client for life. When you get into operations about running renovations and um, all your contractor team has to expand exponentially, it's, it's, it's a lot more challenging. That was always our business model. Uh, I have seen it work uh, all three ways, right? So we're all in one. We do this and we only do this or we you know, don't do this. So Appreciate that, Kevin. And I'd be curious, um, anyone who's got a, a counter perspective, you know, could, could be from the 70%, could be the 30 who was like, Hey, I want to go on a turnkey and it just, it bombed. It wasn't strategic or it, you know, hurt them. I, you know, feel free to jump in, but I'd be curious if anyone had a, has had a different outcome or experience with that, but. We'll give people a breath in case they want to jump in on Thad's question there. But um, Kevin, just so you know, we, we've got attendees who are concerned about your well-being in Memphis and we know there's storms there. If, uh, if Kevin cuts out, uh, <laughs> just know he may be taking cover under a kitchen table or in a bathtub or something like that. Um, yeah, the sirens are not on, so I think we're good right now. All right. Wellness check done. Appreciate it. We, we had a, a question come in from Andy. My question is mainly, um, I'm at the point, I'm a small company. There's just two of us property managers are working. Um, we're at the point where it's getting tough for us to do everything on, the, uh, on our own and grow. Would you advise now bring it on somebody and hope you grow enough to make their wages or wait until you get to the point where you have enough that you're more comfortable with making sure you can pay their wages? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question and it's a struggle for all business owners, no matter what business you're in, right? I think that it, it comes back to um, your philosophy and your risk tolerance. Um, I tend to believe that if you can tolerate the risk of the salary that you have to pay or the wages or, or even if it's a part time, define clearly what you would want them to come in and do and create a window of time where they have the opportunity to give you what the results you're looking for in that investment in their their pay. Um, so if you say I'm willing to put six months into somebody and I and I believe as the owner of the business that if I if I do my job, hire well, train well, this person will absolutely pay for themselves after that six month period. And I think you defined your risk period, then it's on you to, to make it happen. I think it's very difficult in this business to grow without the investment because ultimately your service is what um, ends up suffering. Um, so if you can find a way on the people that you already have, maybe outsource some of the financial side to an accounting for a smaller fee per month and you don't have a full time, then that person can reallocate some of their time. There's all kinds of ways to get creative um, in adding to your team um, and keeping that cost as manageable as possible. Um, 
but yes, I think it's worth the risk if you have the right plan once you make that decision to hire them um, and you hire the right person, right? You, you do your people process well. I'd love to hear even more from the crowd. Yeah, if somebody out there has a, has something they've been through that before, that very decision, how they went about it, it would be great to hear someone's story or experience. And Andy, we encounter people all the time. I will say, this is actually why a lot of people come to Second Nature sometimes is because they say, hey, I'm at this point and I've got this level of profit, but to hire somebody, like I'm going to have to go through this valley for a period of time where my business is not making money and delivering money? Do I have enough savings here to make it through this patch and enough faith, right, that this person's going to bring on the new units and, and revenue that we need to get to the other side of this to scale? And when you think about a question that Evan put in the chat earlier, what's the average property manager making? Well, looking at the NARPM accounting standards, profit coach results, et cetera, typical revenue is $170 you know, per, per unit per month. And your management fees, what typical people are typically collecting, at a 6% margin. So call it a $10 per month uh, you know, profit margin is what they're getting. And so it's why we see people say like, how could I turn that 10 into 20 or 25, right? And strengthen my profit margin, right? On the units that I'm currently doing and put myself in a position where I can make an investment, right? Into salary like that. I need to do this first and then that second. If my risk tolerance, as Kevin was alluding is to, is I'm not so comfortable going into the red or even a red for a multiple month period. Um, you know, it's not the position I'm in. I'm not ready to make that kind of decision. Let me do this first. And then it puts me in a position to do that. And as that person brings on more units, right? Again, they've still got those uh, additional revenues that are scaling with them. So looking for opportunities like that is a way we've seen a lot of people successfully approach that and getting to that kind of next step or stage. Um, Anyone want to offer something here for Andy? If you've been on the other side of that, maybe you were a one man shop or a one woman shop till you hit a hundred units or somewhere. And eventually that you realized that wasn't going to work anymore. And you got to the other side of that, how you went about it. I just mentioned to, to Andy um, privately that we just did go through this and we, we chose to staff up first before the growth came. So, because we didn't want customer uh, service or the client experience uh, jeopardized whatsoever. Um, so, and, and it, it worked out very well. Michelle, thanks for sharing. Great. I think it really depends um, on where you are and what you're trying to accomplish. I know that for me, at least right now, I am probably hiring a person just to be a little bit preemptively um, for the growth, but it's, it's also about what it is that they can do for you. So if you're working on a lot of process, that can free you up to do process so that you can uh, grow sustainably. That's one of the hugest benefits. But when you're first starting off in property management, you're, you're kind of do it all and it's all in your head and it's not on paper. So I, I think that if you're to a point where you really want to make this a career and you want to do that growth, having that person and starting to teach them in the areas that you do so that you can work on the business and not in the business, that'll, that's, that, that'll pay dividends mountains of times over. So it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish um, and making sure that you're very thoughtful in, in what freeing up your time is going to do for the business. Sam, thanks for adding that. I think Kevin Patterson, Laura. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, just comment on her being a single person. Uh, we, we started our business. Um, I actually started property management because um, I, I 
felt like I hit the pinnacle of real estate. I was making over a million dollars a year and I got burned out. And so I started as a single person. It took me over a little over a year, but every extra dollar I had, I would hire staff to help grow the company to where we're over, over a thousand doors now. <clears throat> but I think in today's age, with the VAs as cheap as they are, I, I, I don't know. I think hiring a VA to help you out is substantial these days. I think that's, that's the way to go, in my opinion. We didn't have them when I started in 2014. I, I, I know they were there, but they weren't anything that I was aware of. It's a great point. We see a lot of people doing that of, you know, labor is such a big cost line item. Um, <laughs> and, you know, cer certainly uh, a lot of people who have gone to a global talent strategy and a remote talent strategy are, are seeing a lot, a lot of dividends from that and putting their business in a, in a great position where they can have more staffed help, especially if you think about uh, things that can get done, you know, outside of hours and everything like that. And it's just a challenging hiring market right now. we got a lot of questions coming in in advance of just how hard it is to find talent. Uh, and it's not just costs that are inflating, wages are inflating, right? It's interesting to see uh, how people are approaching that, a lot of different ways people are doing it. So Andy, thanks for the great question, the great conversation that sparked. If anybody has some appreciation they'd like to express for Kevin and Thad for joining us today, would love to see that in the chat, your top takeaways or just something you'd like to express that was really helpful to you today. We'd love that feedback, that qualitative feedback helps us make these more and more relevant for you as we do more and more of these. So it's super appreciated. We'd love to see that in the chat box. Kevin, thanks for the time and for being so generous with both your time and your wisdom today. Thad, thanks for jumping on with us. I just love the questions you ask and also the perspective you shared. And hey, listen, uh, I, I can really talk about hiring, but I, I do keep one credit to my name, which is hired Laura Mack, fought to get Laura Mack on the Second Nature team. And anybody who's encountered Laura Mack knows how good she makes uh, that decision look on a daily basis. Laura, <laughs> thanks for everything you do to I'm make the these lucky Triple Win one. lives possible. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Bye, everyone. That's it. Happy Triple Wednesday. That's all for today's Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your life with us. We do not take it for granted. I also want to give a shout out to Carol Housel for everything she and our team does to make these possible. It's crazy to think about over 5,000 professional property managers have pressed play on episodes in season one and season two now. And we really want to encourage you to keep giving feedback because more and more people are listening. It's getting better and better and better. Thanks to everything that you're sharing with us. If you like this enough to listen, I want to encourage you to share it with other people. Um, you can give us feedback directly on those social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you're hanging out. You can also send us an email at triplewin at secondnature.com. And we just want to give more. We're, we're, there's no sales pitch here. Just want to offer more resources that help you find and stack your next triple win and become a triple win driven property manager. So where can you find that? You can find the private Facebook group. You can find our blog. You can find our newsletter. You can find more resources all at rbp.secondnature.com. Just search for what you're looking for there. And every time we see you, we want to see a better version of you and your business to that end. Keep it going. Feel inspired. Take our encouragement. And we'll see you next time.